the National Archives podcast series, Writer of the Month, In These Times, presented by Jenny Uglo. This talk was recorded on the 18th of March, 2015, at the National Archives, Kew. It's particularly nice to talk here because so much of my life is spent in and around archives of different kinds and um, you just want to say thank you. I mean, uh, thank you to all the people who have left material in the archives, not just official but private individuals, and to the archivists. I've had um, so much help and so many wonderful sideways suggestions from people who know their archives really uh, really well. You know, you, you look up something and they come and say, you might also like to look at this diary we've got, you know, or you might also like to do that. Or, or people who know the subjects of their letters, great long co- family correspondences in county archives, um, so that you can talk to them. You don't feel a fool talking to them and say, what do you think that um, Amabel really thought about so-and-so? And as if well, they were real people, but as if they're people that you know. So archives to me are not only a resource, but a kind of wonderful support and, and, a, and a home. I've been asked to talk about my recent book, which is, which is lovely. I'm very honoured to be writer of the month. And it's called In These Times. And I think somebody said it's also about our times. You know, it's about in these times, because it's very much about what it's like to live through a very active and troubling period of history and perhaps more directly because it's affecting the country that these people lived in as if it's sort of going off you know that feeling where you feel that politics or what's happening in the Middle East or even climate warming is is happening all around you it's affecting your lives and to what extent are we are we involved in it are we affecting it and I think with the Napoleonic Wars the French Wars, really, and then the Napoleonic Wars, it felt, people in Britain felt very much like that. Um, they felt that some great machine was happening that they half understood. And, of course, it was absorbing so many of their own people. So this is a Rowlandson uh, print of 1811. So it's people going off to the uh, Peninsula Wars. And in the background, not troop ships, I think, but transports taking supplies and so on with some sailors and you can just see down on the shoreline the marines in their red two marines in the middle in their red jackets but while they go off my interest was in the people who are left on the shore and and this is a sort of jovial rackety scene um, but it gives you some idea of the range you have this smart couple um, with a lady with her feather in her hat saying a fond farewell to the uh, sort of officer on the far side, a sort of r- wearing r- roughly the same colour dress, I notice, a, a kind of girl being carried off. You know, you, you see television things about binge drinking, and there's, all <laughs> there's always some f- forlorn teenage girl being carried off. And they have already our wounded soldiers, the one-legged sailor uh, playing the instruments, and uh, the dogs and the children and the m- women in the upstairs room, um, this man with his telescope who we kept thinking, what is he looking at? Is he looking at the boats or is he actually looking at the kind of underwear hanging out of the <laughs> <laughs> upstairs window? So there's, as soon as you look at any document or any print, you become aware of the richness of the life that's going on um, all through that long, long time. And I think that's the other thing that struck me and when I wanted to 
when I began writing um, was the sheer length of time. I mean, uh, Britain is at war for over 22 years uh, with a brief peace for the Peace of Amiens, uh, 1801 to beginning of 1803. And, and when you're reading it as it were as history, you go, oh yes, you know, French War, Napoleonic War, 22 years. But if you think of it as us, I mean, 22 years is an amazingly long time. We don't know what will happen in 22 years. And, of course, when the war started, when Pitt uh, declared the war in 1793, great rainy night coming out of the House of Commons, it was very like the First World War. I mean, they really did say uh, French uh, Republic, completely disorganised, uh, European powers, marvellous armies, it will be over in months. So nobody expected it. Um, and I think uh, when reading diaries of people at home and letters of people at home, um, that's her husband's going off to war, or if it's children, father's going off to war, and then it's sons going off to war, brothers going off, and then it's children going off to war, so that there are babies who are not even born at the start of the war who are fighting with Wellington uh, in the peninsula and at Waterloo. So <coughs> what I wanted to do was to find some of the voices from that time and see if I could do a kind of range of uh, people's experience, a, a sort of crowd biography, I called it. So this is just a, a sample of the people whose uh, diaries, letters, archives I use. Now, it, don't worry, it's not a test. You won't have to remember <laughs> them at the end. But you see all the, all the different people who were writing about what it was like to live through these times. Um, James Oakes, who's a a yarn merchant and then an alderman in Bury St Edmunds which are a wonderful uh, diary with many stars and underlining for important events all through the war. Next to him is a very young photograph of a, a miniature of Hannah Gregg of Quarry Bank Mill. I, I suspect some people have been to, to Quarry Bank Mill. Bessie Harness is a soldier's wife uh, and then her, at the end of the war her son too uh, joins the army. Tertius Galton comes from a gun-making family in Birmingham. Uh, and here we've got two sailors, very different. The wonderful William Salmon, who was just the captain of a little coaster in the Severn, going from Chepstow to Barnstable and then across to Dublin, up to Alverston to get iron and longing to go further afield, who wrote um, a whole series of letters to his fiancée, Fanny about his life and about his hopes, and it's a rather sad story in the end. And next to him, Frank Austin, one of Jane Austen's two sailor brothers. Um, and her um, letters, of course, are actually absolutely full of the war, as are her novels once you start. They'll never let people say Jane Austen doesn't write about the war. Uh, here we have Mary Hardy, Brewer's wife from Norfolk. Betsy Fremantle. Do people perhaps know the Wind Diaries? That's Betsy. She and her sister, Eugenia, started keeping a diary at the age of uh, nine, ages of nine and 11, and they kept them till they died. And so Betsy lived into her 80s. Imagine that. And she's very, very funny. Um, here you see she's a little teenage bride. She, her family lived in, in Europe, rather like Vanity Fair, you know, if it was cheaper living on the continent, rather a rackety father. And they fled when Napoleon's armies were coming into Italy uh, and got a lift on a boat from, from Livorno going down to Naples. And Betsy was 16 and became rather involved with the captain, young captain, Captain Fremantle, 
And, and at first they said, no, you, you can't marry. And then they married in Naples a couple of years later at uh, William Hamilton, Hamilton's house. And Betsy sailed with her husband, with Nelson. And she was there at the uh, attack on Tenerife when Nelson lost his arm. Um, and so she nursed him and her husband, also wounded all the way back. And Nelson was not apparently not a very good patient, you could imagine it. Uh, but much later, her husband William said to her, so this is the person to whom Nelson wrote his first note in his left hand. Really part of history. In the middle, John and Jane Marshall, who John Marshall was a linen uh, manufacturer at Leeds, um, and Jane was, as a girl, Jane Pollard was Dorothy Wordsworth's best friend as a child. So there are a lot of letters to Dorothy, but he also kept a fascinating diary. Uh, or two aristocrats, one young, one old, Sarah Spencer from Althorpe, who comes to London, a 17-year-old, shy, debutante really, at the end of the war, and wrote lots of letters to her midshipman brother. And Amabel Hume Campbell, who's one of those redoubtable uh, women who really wanted to be a politician herself, so she had very, very strong opinions on everything that's going on. Quite different kinds of, of letters. But, of course, the people that aren't here because they wouldn't have their portraits painted are the... This is sort of elite, middle-class, low-middle-class, um, but are the workers. Um, and you think... Well, they often say we can't hear their voices, but they're there too... Um, Oldham Public Library has a wonderful diary by a weaver, William Rowbottom. Uh, Chesham Library in Manchester, marvellous memoir by called James Weatherly, who became an itinerant sort of bookseller in the middle of Manchester, but was a factory boy at the time, and he's very funny, very lively. And then they're in court transcripts and so on. So you can get this great range of, of voices. Sort of, doesn't it, say, go very quickly through the next 22 years. <laughs> but uh, this is just to have a sense of new people who work in archives are very familiar with this, of how you feel the personality of these different people through their diaries and through their letters. That's James Oakes from Bury St Edmunds, his, his diary. A lovely description in the middle from... Plymouth and West Devon Record Office of someone who saw Napoleon on the Bellerophon at the end of the war in a very, very moving, detailed account. He's what he's wearing and things like that. And then he says, oh, inscrutable providence. You know, how can this small person on this boat have accounted for the lives of millions of, of men? Very moving. And here are uh, letters from James uh, Longston, another uh, Derbyshire farmer, and from William Salmon to his uh, Fanny, his dear and beloved Fanny that he writes to so often. Um, and just a, the sense of two histories happening is also very clear because, as you know, the, the newspapers, provincial newspapers and London newspapers, carry very detailed accounts of what's happening in the war in the central, say it's four page, central pages, but, uh, which are the dispatches uh, sent by the generals sometimes even translations of Napoleon's speeches abroad, what's happening in Parliament. This is a, like an official news. And all the time, at the same time, the letters are not censored, as far as we can see. The letters from soldiers and sailors are circulating that might tell a slightly different account of what actually is happening or what it feels like being in Flanders, what it feels like being in the West Indies. So you have this double sense. And also the way that people write to each other all the time. I mean, uh, particularly 
uh, elite uh, women, not writers, but and men are writing two, three times a day. So what I put in there is just uh, 1810 picture of the London Central Sorting Office. <laughs> to show how very busy it was. When I was a student doing post uh, sorting at Christmas, it, it didn't actually look terribly different then. It shows you how old I am. <laughs> it is now. But, but these figures too, in terms of actually how people think of the news, the, the postmen in their red coats, a figure that is both longed for and sometimes dreaded, uh, when is the letter coming? And, and it is, of course, their red coats that gets them the nickname of Robin, and then you put the Robin on the Christmas card and so on. So the post becomes very important in this time. And here's a town crier, another way of delivering the news. And sometimes if you read the memoirs of uh, people who were boys during that time, a lot of uh, future chartist writers remembered their childhood, and they talk about... Uh, the town crier coming through the town announcing the victories and how exciting this was. They didn't come through the town announcing the defeat, but they remembered it as a, as a sort of romantic. But at the start of the war, as I said, nobody thought it would last that long. Uh, people were pleased in, at, at the fall of the Bastille, this is very largely a sense that it would bring an autocratic regime in France nearer to uh, British uh, parliamentary uh, constitution um, and at the same time we w were still able to be slightly disrespectful about our own uh, royal family I know <laughs> this is a 1792 by which time real doubts were uh, emerging about uh, what was happening in France uh, Burke's reflections had been published uh, and on the other hand the Tom Paine's writes about all the answers to Burke but still you could laugh you could laugh at George III who is um, much loved, recovered from his first bout of madness, uh, but known to be very frugal. So there he is with his boiled eggs, Queen Caroline eating salad. It's a very good thing. And his chair is all patched and, uh, you know, mended. There's no fire in the grate and so on. And here um, on his left is his son, then the Prince of Wales, going to be the regent, the voluptuary, um, who has not out of, instead of a boiled egg, has demolished a half a whole ham, you see on the table, and he's got his gambling things on the floor, terrible chamber pot on top of a pile of unpaid bills, <laughs> and a crest, which is um, actually a crossed knife and fork. <laughs> so he's not going to suffer. So yes, it, but all this changes um, dramatically with the execution uh, of Louis the Sixteenth in... Uh, January 1793. This is a... Gilray is very interesting all the way through the war. He, he shifts his position. Sometimes he's a government, and very often a government pensioner, but sometimes he's sympathetic to the others. But here's one which is very, very definitely taking the government line, because this is just after uh, the... I mean, this is a few months after the execution of Louis... Uh, where, with, with those cries ascending to heaven and a recognisable head down there, but also the sense that now all the crowned heads of Europe uh, are at risk and we must, you know, British people must rise up, must defend the Constitution. And on the other hand, here is uh, Tom Paine, who from now on is always going to be caricature called mad, dangerous, so on. Uh, not recognisable. Not, very few of the portraits of people like 
pain and, and Thelwell are actually recognised. They're, they're, they're caricatures of themselves. They're put with their writings. Thinking of those voices, when this occurred, you, ca you have people writing because it's in everybody's diaries. So uh, Parson Woodford, um, I'm sure you know uh, Woodford's diary, Western Longville, he's near Norwich, and he writes, January 26th, Saturday. Billy Bidewell's brought on newspapers from Norwich, the papers so vital. The King of France, Louis XVI, inhumanly and unjustly beheaded on Monday last by his cruel, bloodthirsty subject. Dreadful times, I am afraid, are approaching to all Europe. Dinner today, soused herring, veal pie and calf's head roasted. In Shropshire, there's another clergyman, the Reverend Heber. I write a lot about the Heber family too who was also talking about heinous crimes and vengeance of heaven. And he's very pleased that effigies of Tom Paine are being shot through and through and then burnt. Own children are joining in. Tiddy, Tom and Missy amused themselves yesterday in dressing up two figures to represent Tom Paine and De Maurier, which they carried about, stuck upon their hunting poles all day long and in the evening suspended them from the balustrade at the top of the stairs where they are still hanging. Uh, yeah, it is actually something rather uncanny and about thought about they were, they were 12, 10, 9, you know, that, that they're encouraged to actually hang effigies of these radicals uh, from the banisters. And, and so that division is going to go down, down through the generations for the next years. Um, Bamford, Samuel Bamford, another future chartist, he was watching the Wakes Week procession in Manchester and on the back of the cart, there's a, a stuffed effigy. Uh, that was Tom Paine and the crowds following him. This is a loyalist mob shooting pistols and shouting, you know, Tom Paine's a Jacobin, Tom Paine's a thief. And Bamford wrote, poor Paine was thus shot in effigy on Saturday, repaired, re-embellished, and again set upright on Sunday, and murdered out and out on Monday, being again riddled with shot and finally burned. I, of course, became a friend. You see, the divisions are, are, are coming. And this panic, the division, the polarization, uh, did sort of led to uh, a real government panic, what's known as Pitt's Terror of 1794, um, and the trials for treason, and the passing of the Gagging Acts, Seditious Meetings Act, Treasonable Practices Act, which forbade the uh, gathering of uh, Republicans um, and really sort of pushed that whole movement underground but it is important it stays there it, it doesn't completely disappear and it creeps into the news and, and into the diary so you had Mary Hardy writing about uh, many people taken up in England for sedition and treason and the habeas corpus act suspended at the same time that she's writing about soldiers in Fla France and Flanders dying um, the, there's a, a feeling that the war has come home. There's a sort of danger of civil war as well. But of course, uh, the main thing that the government wanted, as well as keeping down this uh, incipient republicanism, which was probably never as much of a threat as they felt, was uh, men for the army and, um, and men for the navy. And <laughs> at the beginning, the, the army is presented as a, a sort of glamorous procession. Everybody turns out to see them go. And the camps, these great camps across the country, are places they, they stage mock 
parades, they stage mock battles, as people flood to see them. And of course, <coughs> one of the best uh, expressions, as it were, of that kind of sense of glamour, written that towards the end of the wars, but remembering the beginning, is, is uh, Lydia in Pride and Prejudice. And it made me laugh when I saw this rather risque um, a picture of the Wags of Windsor, because in uh, Pride and Prejudice, Austen has Lydia say that Brighton Camp conjures up for her every possibility of earthly happiness. <laughs> in a place thronged with officers, <coughs> she saw herself the object of attention to tens and scores of them at once. At present unknown, she saw all the glories of the camp, tents stretched forth in beauteous uniformity of lines, crowded with the young and gay, dazzling with scarlet, and to complete the view, she saw herself seated beneath the tent, tenderly flirting with at least six officers at once. <laughs> so there's a sort of exotic, erotic attraction. And during the war, another story, which I can't really tell here, um, you have three levels of, of the army. You have the regular army going off to fight. You have the militia chosen by ballot, very unpopular. Everybody, rich people, bought substitutes so they didn't have to be in the militia, which is sent around the country to police disturbance here but may feed into the regulars and then you have the very dashing uh, volunteers starting out with gentlemanly lot these are all London uh, companies of volunteers and gradually uh, the volunteer movement grew so that by the beginning of the Second World War the Napoleonic War 1803 to 4 we have over 300,000 volunteers not simply the gentry but the artisans too and that becomes a very important feature of of British patriotism during the time. But of course the reality was very different, very different for the soldiers who went overseas, not just in battle but also uh, from fever. Uh, 45,000 men uh, died from fever in the West Indies alone in the first five years of the war. And the let these letters come home again and again. And the reality for the regular soldier and the volunteers too was probably less like this glamorous picture than um, this, this is a Rowlandson's uh, <laughs> private drilling with the recruiting officer sort of encouraging the uh, young man, his parents absolutely thrilled, he looked so wonderful, um, and the girl flirting more with the recruiting officer than uh, proud of her brother, but he's going to march off to war. And there are many accounts too of how profoundly unsuitable many of them, particularly in the volunteers, uh, many of the uh, soldiers were. Um, and how hard they found it to train and how far. And as the wars go on, uh, many of these men are being sent out uh, totally uh, unprepared and untrained. And when, and also sent by magistrates for small offences, they will be sent to the army rather than to jail. So that when Wellington talks about his army being, his privates being the scum of the earth, seen as a as a, a sort of damning, arrogant, dismissive thing, and he was. Um, but what he's actually saying is that there uh, is, look at this army, look at what we've made. And I wrote it down. He said that many of them are sent for a small uh, fence um, or to uh, getting a bastard child or being drunk in the street and so on. Um, and look what we have made of them. These, these men were the scum of the earth and we've made them the finest fighting troops in, in Europe. But this gap between the image and the reality is the same, very much the same for the Navy. There are many demonstrations. The press gang, which have been around since Elizabethan times, 
constantly used many demonstrations against the gang, seizing sailors, seizing men back from whaling trips and so on, seizing people inland, um, often led by women. So there are accounts of, of, of women uh, attacking the rendezvous stations and so on. Um, but the image that's portrayed to the people as a whole uh, is on the one hand of the noble tar with a heart of gold, many dramas and songs, um, and of the immense courage in the naval victories, because in the first war there were very few land victories. What good news came back was of naval victories, Camperdown, St. Vincent, and so on. Um, and, of course, the Battle of the Nile, Nelson's great achievement there, where he got his ships to sail inland of the, and the shallow waters between the French and the shore there in Abu Clear Bay, and also at sunset. Nobody expected a battle to begin at sunset. It just wasn't on. And Nelson began there. So this is the screen today. But this is the uh, when the French flagship Lorient exploded. It's about 10 o'clock at night. Amazing, uh, dramatic uh, scenes, and scenes of heroism, and scenes that were really profoundly celebrated. There were bonfires and so on, up and down the country. Uh, when the sailors came back, of course. Again, it's a thing of the reality not being what you expect. The terribly wounded. And one of the worst sets of wounds uh, came not from the shot, but from the splinters, these long splinters like spears as it, as it raked across the, the deck. Um, and Henry Angelo, who was a fencing master, who taught Byron to fence and many others, and he was a great friend of Rowlandson, and, and they went down together to Portsmouth to um, see the ships come back. And Angelo, another very vivid set of memoirs, wrote, when we went below deck, the scene was truly frightful. On each side were hammocks on the floor with numbers of dying and wounded. At this moment, I fancy I see their pale faces and black beards. Here, great havoc must have been made as the shot appeared from the grooves on the deck like that of a plowshare on the earth to have raked through the cabin from stern to stem. Our curiosity did not last long. The smell with the sight of the dying and the groans of the wounded soon put an end to our naval visit. And it's those are the sailors that many families are having to uh, welcome back. And it's very hard for poor people ever to visit their uh, wounded relatives. Uh, Southie writes a poem about a woman trying to walk from the north down to Portsmouth to see the wounded sailor son because they're far from from home. Rushing on the, the naval uh, um, victories like this or that great sort of explosive power does however say to the people Britain has power, you know we have power, we can defeat uh, the French and it's matched by sort of military power, naval power, by a sense of power at home one of the things that happens during the war um, is a great increase, a sort of forcing of industrial growth and particularly of course in the arms industry um, and in the iron and steel industry it's a time when we're able to match uh, Swedish uh, iron so if you think of I'll try going backwards this is both paintings by de Lutherberg this is his Battle of the Nile with the flagship <laughs> exploding and here is his Colebrookdale by night is equally powerful and equally sort of demonic and terrible and brilliant at once. Now here, uh, I showed you Tertius Galton from the Galton factory. Um, this is a wonderfully martial 
a celebration in the trade directory of their part in the war. But both of these are interesting for a quite different reason, in that Colebrookdale uh, and the Galton's factory are both uh, run by Quakers. So that you have something you don't expect. What is the Quaker position going to be uh, during the war? The Quakers were quite uh, sort of clear on, on this um, and um, issued a, a statement in Birmingham against the Galtons in the 1790s that if anybody be concerned in fabricating or selling instruments of war, let them be treated with love, and if by this unreclaimed, let them be further dealt with as those we cannot own. So Quakers are pacifists. If you make arms, you're out. Galton was very defiant. Um, he said, my family have made arms, and he rightly pointed out that many of those were people who were attacking him were trading in tobacco or trading in sugar. You know, how can you... That was, in other words, supporting slavery. What was so wrong with this? And also that great uh, argument of arms manufacturers in all time, everywhere. If we don't... We need to make the weapons in order to win the war, in order for there to be peace. You know, what we're really doing is manufacturing the means of peace. So he remained defiant, and he was... Um, not expelled, but he did have to leave the... He wasn't accepted into the Birmingham meeting or the, or the Society of Friends, but he was allowed to go to meetings. So he kept going to meeting defiantly, wearing his Quaker hat, till he died. Now, Colebrookdale, which, of course, the Derbys were Quakers, and then the great Reynolds factory. In the American War, they made uh, iron for cannons. In this war, uh, Reynolds decided not to make... not to make armaments, not to supply iron for the cannon. And... Uh, what happened was, was, was very interesting in that the profits fell, and there were other great cannon manufacturers, but uh, Colebrookdale became an extraordinary kind of uh, research and development, sort of R&D place. It was a place where, where Trevithick went to work on the steam, uh, his you know, experiments with the steam engine, where um, all sorts of uh, experiments on gases, on heat, on so on, uh, on building with iron, took place all the way through the war. Um, so that, although it's used as a, as it were, as a patriotic image of British power, actually the war uh, allowed it to become something quite different. So I suppose all I, or, or the main thing I wanted to say is that you think, when you're studying a period or a set of diaries, you think you're going to find the obvious. You know, here they are, they all made arms, they became rich, right? And you don't, you find something, a completely different set of histories which have to do with religious orientation, which have to do with personal feeling, which have to do uh, with experiment. But you've got men, arms, and then, of course, um, the other thing that's needed uh, um, is going to be money. I did have a wonderful uh, private archive, Hawes Bank in Fleet Street. If you go up Fleet Street, you still see it with its golden bottle over there. And if you step inside, and you can, nobody, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a nice chap on the door, won't stop you. There's a glass case. And in the glass case, they've still got the uh, Brown Best muskets, which uh, Hawes Bank, who had their own set of volunteers, were made for them during the Napoleonic Wars. And you think, well, are they still there in case, you know, the Occupy movement or something gets a bit frisky up the road? <laughs> but the bankers uh, were a fascinating group. And very. another thing that happens during the war is that Britain has to go off the gold standard. We have the introduction of paper money, many uh, comic cartoons, much panic about that. But it did allow Britain to have a flexibility 
of payment throughout the war. Many bankers go under, some succeed extremely well. Whores uh, had a policy which they, they still reckon that they adopt, which is they're going to be cautious, they're going to be sensible. Um, but it made me laugh because as soon as war uh, comes, is declared, and all the way through the war, letters start going out to their customers which said, due to the difficult nature of the times, I'm afraid we cannot extend your overdraft any longer. You know. uh, due to the extremely peculiar and dangerous thing of the times, I'm afraid we will have to decline your uh, you know, request for uh, money for a mortgage. And they took it to such an extent that they actually um, denied the Queen uh, a loan at one point, and then they sort of panicked and thought better of it and, and said, oh, well, maybe we'll let Her Majesty have a few thousand, you know. <laughs> and that was very good because they then got actually all the Windsor accounts. And, and they have wonderful, their account books. I'm sure it's the same with Drummond, sort of private banks. Uh, the great people here may have used it, but the greatest set of archives, talking about archives like that, is the Royal Bank of Scotland because... They took over, say, ages ago, you know, the Midland Bank took over lots of small county banks and then they were taken over by something else. I know they're at HMSC. And the bank took over bank, took over bank, took over bank, took over bank. And so there's this great pyramid of archives of, and sometimes very small accounts. And I've actually been in there. You see the very first 17th century kind of bank account books in the restoration. But uh, halls have... Uh, like the bank account books of the Austin family and of Byron, when he sold, tried to sell Newstead, he got five thousand uh, on deposit, and then the sale didn't go through. But he, you know, he kept the five thousand, and he was very happy. Brunel, and so the, in, when you see them, it's, it's the archives that make you realise that you're that that this is actually a living, working fabric history, uh, and also when you read the letter. So that uh, is a different sort of side. And while Hawes went on and, and made money and became rich and bought their estates, at the same time, this is the, the, the bank crisis when the paper money is introduced. And this is the time Sheridan made the speech about the old lady of Threadneedle Street uh, getting into bad company with people from St. James's. And there's the old lady with her. And, and here is Pitt again trying to uh, stuff notes into John Ball's pocket. But at the same time, richer getting richer, poorer getting poorer. Uh, there were very bad harvests during the war. Um, there was tremendous food shortages. Uh, there were food riots. And there were many changes in the poor law. People sent back. This is the pastorum at Bridewell, where women found on the streets of London being sent back to their parish had to stay before they went. And you do feel that across the roads of Britain, that all the roads are full of movement. I mean, they're full of movement. They could be taking arms down from Weedenbeck to the coast or taking uh, goods to market still. But they're also full of vagrant families. And I think many of the diaries of the time, and if you think of Dorothy Wordsworth, for example, talk about the poor people that are met on the road. And it gives you rather a different picture uh, of life in Britain to the sort of grand polite regency memoirs that we might read. But that regency life is there at the same time. So you get layer on layer, country on country. And I put this in because if we think of the Peace of Amiens in the middle of the war, 1801, November really, signed in March 1802, um, everybody rushes to France. 
And part of the reason they rushed to France is to, is curiosity about Napoleon, who by now has risen to uh, become consul, not the emperor yet, um, and everybody wants to meet him, and the people do. You know, Herschel meets Napoleon, Mariah Edgeworth writes about Napoleon, and so on. But it's also because France is still, despite all those years of war, the center of culture. You know, you have a French cook if you can, and you certainly wear French fashions if you can. And here's the two Gilrays, look, 12 years old, uh, apart, and um, very ridiculous fashions. I love the people in Bond Street, you know, the swells, the pushing her off the pavement. But uh, he's quite right, you know, to in order to increase the mockery, he calls them la politesse du grand monde. Uh, and les invisibles. So you know, the sort of French cultural life is what is desired. Um, and London is growing with wonderful uh, Nash buildings and marvellous sort of displays and fireworks at the same time that all those poor people are uh, on the road. When the piece uh, crumbled and crashed in uh, March 1803, um, then there really is a real sense of a direct threat. This is going to be a different war. It's not a war to protect the Constitution. It's a war to protect Britain and Europe against the depredations of Napoleon, who is uh, presented as a sort of maniac uh, um, who, who wishes to take over the whole of Europe, as, as indeed his own speeches suggest, and not only Europe, but uh, India as well, if you could, Egypt, for India. And, and so here's our John Bull defying him. And Another thing that fills the archives, I'm sure they're here too, are all these broadsides of different kinds. Th this is uh, 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 actually a scene of, it's, it's quite funny, but of um, managing at last to actually make it a, a united kingdom. So you've got uh, John Ball and Sandy from Scotland and Taffy from Wales and Paddy from Ireland, and they're finally all getting together. And the invasion, uh, people rushed away from the coast, particularly 1803 to four because that threat of invasion was very real and you could see from Dover. And again, the diaries are both vivid and also sometimes quite funny. So the Gurney family, more Quakers but more bankers, banker family, wonderful family of girls, one of whom Elizabeth would grow up to become, we know her as Elizabeth Fry, but very frivolous when they're young, very un-Quaker-like. They spent all their summer holidays in Cromer by the sea and they were terribly cross that they thought they had to go home simply because the French might come. So they stuck out there as long as they could. But by sort of towards, you know, the autumn coming, um, they began to get rather worried because their father, John, was going off to uh, Liverpool. And uh, Priscilla, one of the sisters, wrote, I think we shall be in a very unprotected state if the French should land when my father is away, as if John <laughs> defend the whole thing, uh, without a single man or even boy to take care of us. So they had this family conference and they made their plans. It is, however, now finally decided that as soon as ever we hear the news of their arrival, we six sisters, Danny, that's her room, and if we can manage it, Molly and Ellen, the maids, are immediately to set off in the coach and fall for Ely, where we are to take up our abode, as my father thinks it a very safe place, being so completely surrounded by marshes. Mrs. Freeman is to stay here to take care of the house, as it will be necessary for somebody to be here. <laughs> so this is sort of, you know, always a division. A wonderful Priscilla, perfectly happy to sacrifice her housekeeper to the, the French if somebody needed to 
uh, take care of the house. And, and a lovely sort of ingenuous, it never enters her head that Mrs Freeman might also quite want to take refuge in the marshes. But uh, the uh, invasion threat ends, of course, with, uh, re- really ends before that, with the Battle of Trafalgar. This is a, a wonderful Turner whose paintings I like so much because they're always about, as it were, the crowd, Nelson, a man among men rather than the grand hero, same as Waterloo. And here too we have Betsy Freemantle, we have the personal responses, waiting for news. Uh, Freemantle, her husband, is with uh, Nelson, and she's writing in her diary, uh, much alarmed by Nellie, that's her maid, Nellie's ghastly appearance immediately after breakfast, who came in to say that Dudley had brought from Winslow the account that a most dreadful action had been fought off Cadiz. Nelson and several captains killed and 20 ships were taken. I really felt indescribable misery until the arrival of the post. And the post brings her a letter saying that Fremantle is safe and telling her of the victory at Trafalgar and Nelson's death. And she's deeply distressed uh, uh, at the same time about the death of Nelson. And Southey, who wrote his life of Nelson in 1814, he said, um, and it does seem to be true from all these uh, archival letters, that everybody felt it um, as something more than a public calamity. Men (coughs) started at the intelligence and turned pale as if they heard the loss of a dear friend. And um, these are the brave tars of the victory, determined to bring Nelson's body back on their own ship, not send him as people wanted to on a fast cut, and his funeral uh, in London. And economic life is continuing, but towards the end of the war, incredibly under pressure because of continuing uh, blockade and so the diaries and letters then will be many particularly from small manufacturers about um, the pressure that they're under and the pressure that they're under is uh, intensified by uh, hunger and by technological change because people are bringing for instance the factory owners bringing in frames because they are under pressure and they wish to make more profit they don't want to close down uh, replacing the skilled men with machines and so there's a great cry for peace for an end to the uh, the decrees the orders in council which are keeping the as it were the British blockade opposite to the French blockade and stopping trade and they merge with the uh, protests of the workers particularly the skilled men like the croppers who are going to lose their job and one of the features of them is the series of Luddite outrages in 1812. It's a wonderful poster of uh, very often the Luddite leader, and it goes back and it goes on to the Rebecca riots, um, back to food riots, are dressed as women as if to say we are not protesting because we are aggressive, but because we must care, we must care for our people. And the more, and, and also protest about peop- the poor people being driven into the war. These uh, lovely pictures on the <laughs> right uh, are by George Walker, who um, the costumes of Yorkshire, 1814, amateur artist. The booksellers persuaded him to go out um, and paint and made a, a wonderful book of it. And here is Walker again, showing that these two worlds that come together towards the end of the war, the traditional agriculture, which of course the farmers have done extremely well during the war, um, and the new industry. This is the collier. You feel that from the beginning of the war, when it's primarily an agricultural thing, that the the sort of industrial changes have actually been squished and forced and gone at an accelerated pace, so that we're now on the edge, very edge 
of the world of, of steam. And just by sheer chance, because Walker was drawing a collier in his traditional dress, he'd also produced what uh, is taken to be the very first painting of a, a steam uh, locomotive. It's actually at Blenkinsop's colliery near Leeds. It's not a passenger train, but uh, it's difficult that Blenkinsop uh, called one of his engines uh, Wellington, Salamanca, after Wellington, another uh, Wellington. And then a couple of years later, George Stevenson will be developing uh, his uh, engines. And again, uh, one of them is called Blucher. You know, they, the power of, of um, the steam age is linked to that uh, of the army. But it does end with the victory. I mean, you have such a, a, the excitement when Napoleon is sent to Elba, a, a year of rejoicing and such dismay when uh, he returns. And then again, here is Turner. The, by the time of the Field of Waterloo, everybody almost feels what Turner expresses in this picture, that too many people have died. I mean, th there is rejoicing at the news, but... The slaughter is so great on all sides um, that there's also this tremendous melancholy that comes at the same time. And Turner's brilliance is to show the armies absolutely intermingled and the women uh, searching for uh, the people they love. They could be from either side. It is just a sort of whole field of, not of triumph, uh, but again of this explosive power, but also of death. And so after Waterloo, remembering that the divided nation had gone all the way through, the problems about money, the problems about what people are going to do when they come back from the wars, uh, enormous national debt, great suffering. There, there's, a, there's a feeling that the battles still have to be faced, really, uh, rather than a, a, a great sense of celebration. And so I'm just going to end with this wonderful series of, that J.G. Smith did of Beggars in London, and this is his... Uh, London beggars very ironically celebrating the peace which is going to make very little difference to their lives at all just simply add to their numbers many of Smith's pictures are of wounded soldiers handless soldiers selling matchboxes uh, and so on this sense continues too so that you have at the end of the war the uh, weavers lament which uh, continues to say that uh, you know Boney may have been conquered you say that bony party he's been the spoil of all and that we have got reason to pay for his downfall well bony party's dead and gone and this is plainly shown that we have bigger tyrants in bonies of our own so we may have won the war but the struggle has still got to continue so um, thank you very much uh, for listening. <laughs> This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.